Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is CW, and we're here with Tanya Mack, Women's Telehealth. Hello, Welcome. everybody. Yeah, good to be back. Pleased to have you in the studio today, and we'll be talking about uh, an important topic that needs a little bit of attention. We are. This month is Alcohol Awareness Month, so in honor of alcohol awareness, we're actually going to try to raise some alcohol awareness. It is a very prevalent topic, and I can't think of one person that's escaped that in their life, personally, yeah, myself. Yeah, we all I know, know somebody. I know. I was thinking about this not, not too long ago. I've gotten several people from my high school that were uh, taken too early yeah. around this yeah. particular issue. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. We're here to raise awareness, and alcohol touches almost everyone in some way. Um, over 86% of people greater than 18 years old will drink at some point in their lives. And pretty much it affects us negatively, our health, our family, our work. And the CDC recently released some sobering statistics, at least they were to me. Uh, first off, alcohol-related deaths are the third leading cause of death in the United States. That's just That's crazy, so avoidable. There is one death every 51 minutes from a motor vehicle accident that had an alcohol-impaired driver. 40% of violent crimes are committed by people under the influence. And this is the real shocker to me. Alcohol kills more teens than all illegal drugs put together. And that's those were surprising when I started reading through those. Very um, surprising. Anyway, sobering statistics, but prevention, sobriety, and recovery is possible. That's part of our message today. Um, this year's theme for alcohol awareness is for the health of it, early education on alcohol and addiction. And I'm thrilled to have our guest today. Today we have in the studio with us Dr. Greg Raduka. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Tanya. Good to be here. Yeah, and Greg is the uh, Director of Prevention and Intervention for the Council on Alcohol and Drugs here in Atlanta. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He has his Ph.D. from the University of Maryland in the Institute of Child Studies. He's also a licensed professional counselor. Um, he's responsible for five different substance abuse programs throughout the state of Georgia and also the Prescription Drug Abuse Program. And he has, has your programs have won uh, all seven awards from the Health and Human Services um, department. So congratulations on that. So I'm sure we're in good hands on this topic today. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yes. And let me tell you a little bit about the National Council on Alcohol and Drugs. I think it's a, a long established and very successful resource here in Atlanta. It's a 48-year-old nonprofit um, that focuses on the prevention of substance abuse. And they're located in the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. And they work in a variety of locations um, prevention in home, work, school, so a little bit of everywhere, and we're going to hear about that today. So welcome, Dr. Raduka. Thank you. And let's just kind of get right into it. Um, can you just kind of start by giving us an overview of how the, the, the organization is structured and what your mission is and your vision is? Very good. Uh, well, our council's mission is to change lives by empowering communities uh, to prevent substance abuse and related problems at home, school, work, with resources, education, and advocacy to be the 
premier resource for substance abuse prevention and education to help change lives and help save save futures. Uh, That's the vision that we have. Sounds pretty ambitious. I bet you're a busy guy. We are. Well, let's start with, um, we were talking off air kind of downstairs before we came up to the studio, and one of our first points we started talking about was how uh, people forget that alcohol is actually a drug. And you talked a little bit about um, if we actually tested and looked at some of the parameters, uh, it may be considered not a drug appropriate for consumption now. So why don't we kind of just start our talk with some terminology about alcohol as a drug and drug dependency and making distinctions between alcohol use and dependency? All right. Those are great questions, Tanya. I appreciate so much your focusing on what really needs to be focused on. Uh, Alcohol uh, is a very difficult topic uh, to speak on and for people to hear about uh, because there are really two faces of alcohol that are involved. And, uh, you know, when most people drink, um, they don't have problems with it. Uh, even when most people smoke tobacco, they don't get cancer. And yet we know that cancer is an incredible problem uh, among those who smoke. Uh, it's the same with alcohol. Um, most people can control their drinking, uh, don't have problems with it. They're what we call social drinkers. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is also true uh, that 88,000 of us Americans die every year from alcohol. That is a sobering statistic. Now, you don't think of taking a drink might lead to your death, the majority of people. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. Just like smoking a pack of Marlboros, you wouldn't, you know, you can't overdose on a pack of Marlboros. Mm -hmm. But there are effects uh, from drinking, long-term effects many times, sometimes immediate effects. If one gets behind the wheel, approximately 10,000 Americans die from uh, alcohol-related automobile accidents every year. So it's really a mixed bag in that way. Mm -hmm. One term I came up across that kind of surprised me, maybe you can clarify, was alcohol use disorder. So is the language kind of changing or can you kind of fit that into a box or how we might how we might look at that? Yeah, the the technical jargon for psychiatrists especially is changing. I think it was in 2013 when the the DSM-5 came out and uh, changed the terminology that psychiatrists use for most of us would term uh, alcohol abuse or alcoholism or dependency and termed it uh, alcohol use disorder. It's got three forms, uh, mild, moderate, and severe, depending upon the number of diagnostic criteria or symptoms that people are having. It's a little unfortunate because, say, if an alcohol abuser knows that they've been diagnosed with uh, mild alcohol use disorder, or an alcoholic might be diagnosed with moderate alcohol use disorder. Well, that sounds not too bad. You know, say, gee, I have a, only have a mild case, mm-hmm. or I only have a moderate <laughs> well, I case. I think denial is part of the that's problem so here. Yeah. Right, yeah. That's something that psychiatrists really need to work through if a patient uh, hears that type of diagnosis from, from their doctor. Okay, and from your perspective, I know we just talked about denial, but there is a line somewhere between alcohol use and actual dependency. So is there some kind of definition or what, what kind of is that line? 
Well, there are the the medical criteria that are in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the APA, and you go with a certain number of symptoms for mild and moderate and severe. When you get into the moderate or severe stage, say five or six symptoms or more, then you begin to go into dependency. But to keep it simple, a great definition I heard was from uh, Dr. Doug Talbot years and years ago, who founded the Talbot Recovery Center that's mm-hmm. in South Atlanta still. And he said there are two major criteria for, for an alcoholism, which is an addiction to alcohol. And one is you can't stay stopped. And the other is that it's irrational. Mm-hmm. So many alcoholics, many addicts try and test themselves. You know, can I stop this for two weeks? Can I stop this for a month? If they're successful, then lo and behold, they say, well, gee, you know, I could I could stop for two weeks. I couldn't be alcoholic. And then they'll go back to drinking mm-hmm. again. So it's almost like a sign of someone having a serious problem with alcohol if they have tried to stop for a while. For example, I would bet that you've never tried to stop eating asparagus mm-hmm. Because you never had a problem right. with asparagus. Wouldn't even occur to me. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, me either. That can be a sign in and of itself that one can stop for a while, but it uh, has a compulsive nature to it, has craving to it, and one can't stay stopped. The other thing is that it's irrational, that uh, especially as an alcoholism progresses, uh, as an alcohol use disorder progresses, everybody else begins to notice it sometimes more than the alcoholic because denial is a key factor in this particular illness. And life goes downhill in one area after another, whether it's, you know, family, uh, sometimes the job is the last thing to go, social relationships, uh, social functioning, many times legal problems ensue. And any rational person would say, you know, would make the connection between the drinking and the problems they're having Mm -hmm. in their life. But that is an extremely difficult connection for an alcoholic to make because for so many alcoholics, the thought of stopping drinking is almost like, oh, I'm going to die kind if like I stop drinking. Kind of like they're hardwired, yeah. Yeah, it's hardwired. hardwired to it, yeah. And, and so those are the two key factors that it really doesn't make sense. Alcoholics are kind of known for doing some irrational things in their lives, which makes sense if, you know, alcoholism has become the center of their lives and everything else revolves around that. But to other people looking in, it, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that certainly helps clarify. And we were talking off the air about a program, and I wanted you to speak kind of early in this program about it, the Alcohol and Substance Abuse Prevention Program. And I think it's a resource that we have in Georgia that we just don't know we have. Can you talk a little bit about that and how our state kind of is managing or looking at this problem? The Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities of the state of Georgia has put together uh, a great program uh, of prevention. And they were very wise in singling out alcohol because they knew some of the stats that you discovered and some of the stats mm-hmm. that I spoke of about in so many ways, alcohol is the worst drug of all for kids. You know, so many well-meaning parents, and even myself, before I began to study alcohol in particular, uh, thought that, well, as long as my kid's just drinking, they're going to be okay. It's, it's funny that it's the reverse of that, that for kids, alcohol is the worst drug of all because it kills more of them, mm-hmm. even more so present than some of the prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. 
the Department of Behavioral Health, uh, which also has prescription drug prevention pro uh, programs, um, uh, heroin prevention programs, also has this alcohol prevention program. It uses what's called the environmental strategy, and that's a relatively new strategy, but it proved to work so well with tobacco. And what it is, in, in addition to having small, like, classroom groups, uh, you know, you traditionally mm -hmm. think of prevention being taught to a classroom of 30 kids, mm -hmm. for example. You do things that will affect thousands of kids and their parents. So you do things like social media campaigns and traditional media campaigns. You have Facebook uh, ads, Facebook posts, you have websites, uh, you have billboards that thousands and thousands of people drive by every day. And with Atlanta traffic, many times they get stuck in front of mm -hmm. <laughs> that billboard, which in this case is a good thing because they'll, they'll mm -hmm. really read it. So there are many things like that. There's counter-advertising because... Uh, the alcohol industry does have some advertising, which one could easily believe targets kids that are under 21. For example, in my local grocery store, um, there are cartons of beer with pictures of look like Ninja Turtles on them. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> kind of like the old uh, cigarette campaigns yeah, when they exactly. were targeted. Joe Camel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's why they stopped doing Joe Camel. Mm -hmm. But um, there are a lot of Alka Pops around, uh, things that look just like soda or lemonade, mm -hmm. uh, and they're cherry-flavored, strawberry-flavored. So any industry uh, needs new customers, and one way to get new customers is to attract them through various marketing techniques. So I think one has to be very careful to point out to kids, you know, this may be targeted toward your age group. And when you say point out to kids, let's talk about at what age you, we, we were talking about um, how in our era, it was more like teenagers, but I think that's kind of shifting. It, it is. There's, there's been what's called a trickle-down effect, mm -hmm. so that now it's, it's certainly beginning to affect kids at a younger and younger age. So uh, elementary school is definitely uh, not too early to start talking with your child uh, about alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, fourth, fifth grade. And even before then, you can talk about uh, medicines that could be in one's medicine cabinet and you just wouldn't know it. Even things like Geritol uh, can be 12% alcohol or so. So one has to be careful to maybe remove, like you would uh, prescription drugs, if you can put them in a, a, a lock cabinet at home, then it's it's much safer for the child. Now, is there anything special in this program that Metro Atlanta is doing? Because the population of Georgia is heavily concentrated around Metro Atlanta. Yes, and, and a lot of the interventions that I spoke with you about, uh, we're working with uh, Atlanta Public Schools and DeKalb Schools, working with the DeKalb Juvenile Court to do programs like one of our programs is positive social norms. We've talked about um, how much drinking there is, but it's also important to remember that uh, in any given high school, the number of adolescents that don't drink is can be typically 30%, 40%. There is a myth, a belief among kids that everybody drinks. You know, Ooh. mom, dad, Everybody drinks, so you might as well let me drink too. And that is just not the case. There is a positive social norm that depending upon the school and the school system, 30, 40% of, of high schoolers may choose not to drink. 
So what are some of, for these education programs, what are some of the key messages that you have for prevention in the schools? It's not okay to drink. It's yeah. not as prevalent as you think. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's a big one because kids, like the rest of us, tend to conform a lot of times. Uh-huh. And, and they may conform to what they think is a negative social norm. But if they're, they let them know that there's also this positive social norm, uh, put posters up around the school. ABC High School, in ABC High School, uh, 40% of our, our students choose not to drink, uh, something like that. Are there, just out of curiosity, are there any links between, because I know kids listen to kids way more than adults, or at least mine did. They never, I thought they didn't have a lot of validity to the parents, but is there any kind of the high school kids go into the elementary schools and preach the message, so it's maybe more credible than the parents standing there. Yeah. Is there any link like that? Yeah. It's it's definitely true that uh, nobody listens to a teen like mm-hmm. another teen. Uh, but before I answer your question, I, I would say that uh, there is a lot of research that shows that parents have more of an effect than you think they would. Okay, so it didn't pop out there when we'd like it to, but it sometimes soaks in. Yeah, one of the best predictors of a child not having problems with alcohol when they're growing up is actually the parents taking it seriously. You wouldn't think that, Mm -hmm. but uh, when the research is done, uh, that's actually true. And I say seriously, you know, but not judgmentally. Mm -hmm. So it's a fine balance that a parent needs to take. But to not take a permissive stand has been shown to be a lot healthier, uh, a lot less healthy to take a permissive stand than to actually take a stand mm-hmm. um, as long as there's not too much judging mm-hmm. of the child. Because mm-hmm. then they'll rebel. Then they'll rebel, rebel. The, the forbidden fruit kind of thing. There you go. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit. I think we touched on parents, and I think we're concerned about teens and young adults, but a lot of people don't know how to start that conversation with their kids. So how what are some of your recommendations on how you broach the subject, maybe some age-appropriate things that parents could say? Mm-hmm. If it should occur at, at a fairly early age, because, again, elementary school is the best place to begin, but if it should occur where the child comes to the parent and said, you know, my, my friend Joe offered me some uh, wine today, and uh, you know, I took a sip. And so for the parent, you know, again, not to judge that moment, but that's a very magical moment. And the parent really needs to drop what they're doing at that time, which, you know, can be tough in 2017. Mm -hmm. It's a red flag. Stop. (laughs) It's a a red Mm -hmm. flag. It's a magical moment that might not come again Mm -hmm. uh, or might not come again for years where it's an opening Mm -hmm. to talk to the child about alcohol. And to, you know, talk about, talk over what happened. Again, they haven't committed, in a way they've committed a crime, but the parent doesn't want to come across that way with the child. Mm-hmm. And just to take it uh, very seriously, to take time out to discuss it, and uh, the risks uh, that alcohol brings with it. Uh, it's really good for the parent to have some knowledge uh, before that magical moment uh, about alcohol, they can go to a website, stopalcoholunder21.org. Uh, again, that's stopalcohol21.org. We have some parent manuals there uh, under the resources tab, which will guide a parent uh, step-by-step process as to how to speak with a child. 
um, it, it is important that they give a child a clear message of of, of no use, mm-hmm. really. Not you know, where you can have a sip of daddy's beer, and mm-hmm. you know, some people think that works, but if you look at some of the research from Scandinavia, it it really doesn't work all that well. It's much much better. For example, not to take the keys and let the kids, you know, have a party in the house because, you know, that lesson doesn't last. They're going to get their keys back sooner or later Mm -hmm. and they might still be hung over when they do. So um, it's it's really important to toe the line, have a no use message Um, in later years in particular. I think there need to be some consequences if a child should continue with that behavior. Mm -hmm. I know that when it comes to marijuana, for example, that that it's damaging potentially to teenagers because their brains are still developing. I would assume there's some measure of risk along those lines with a substance like alcohol. Is that effective to be able to talk about those things beyond just don't do it? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm sure that there's some measure of of value in saying don't do it just because you're you're young. But if you talk about those types of risks, does those have any sort of impact? Yeah, that that's a great point. Uh, I think it is very important because alcohol does have an effect on the brain. What gets us drunk is is when some brain cells die. The fact that it does do harm uh, physically as as well as mentally uh, is really important to share with the child. So, if we have some teens listening today, because you never know who's here on the consumer side, or we live mm-hmm. on the internet after this, mm-hmm. if we had to get a message out to the teens, you as an expert in your field see some mistakes, uh, maybe poor judgments that teens make over and over. What are some of those? What are some of those things that you see, and what would be the messages to that particular group? Well, well, this is uh, so tough. You know, it's so tough for teens. Um, in our society because, you know, as we were speaking earlier before the show, alcohol is really infused in just about every aspect Mm -hmm. of our society. So it's like, almost like blaming the fish for dying in a polluted stream. And you can't really take that tack with teens Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they need to take some responsibility Mm -hmm. for, for what, what they're doing. But it's, it's, uh, I really applaud the teen who, growing up uh, in our society, uh, realizes uh, or is thinking about uh, the possible dangers uh, of drinking. To get with some friends who don't drink, uh, so many times we end up doing what the people do who we hang out with. So if if they can hang out, you know, you can be cool uh, and not drink. And, and, And that's a tough one, too, because the advertising messages are the way you get cool is to drink. Then you have, you know, the girl of your dreams, the woman of your dreams, you know, you're on a mountaintop, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, beautiful location. So the advertising is tough. And, and, and for teens to be able to realize the water that they're swimming in uh, is really good to realize that they may be manipulated or trying to be manipulated by an industry that wants to sell them their products. Mm-hmm. So another point we haven't talked about, but I'm curious about is a trend that I've seen both on the substance abuse side with drugs, but I think with alcohol too, is underage teens get in a situation where they're out of control. Someone ODs, passes out or whatever, and they leave them or dump them. Mm-hmm. And they don't, try to access help because they think then they'll be caught if they're there when they're there. 
So can you speak a little bit about that? Has the law changed at all? Or what advice would you give somebody who, like you said, you're with the wrong people, the wrong things are happening, something horrible happens. Um, what do they do? Yeah, very fortunately, uh, the law has changed. And, and there's now a good Samaritan law where teens will not get in trouble if they call 911 uh, for a friend who may be dying. Mm-hmm. If they should leave a friend who, you know, could possibly die, you know, they're going to remember that. Mm-hmm. So to know that they're not going to get in trouble if they make that call to 911 to save their friend uh, is just incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so please call and get help. I think that's yeah. the main message there if you kind of get out of control. Well, let's shift our talk away from teens a little bit, and I would like to start talking about physical symptoms of alcohol dependency. You mentioned earlier in the program, one of them would be um, the craving, you know, noticing that there's a craving and kind of um, irrational thinking. Are there others? Uh, yes, there There are a, a host of uh, physical symptoms. Um I mean, in some ways, it doesn't matter if a drug is physically or psychologically addicting. If you're driving, for example, mm-hmm. if you're if you're high on it, you can run over somebody just as easily on a psychologically addicting drug as one that's both psychological and physical. But the physical uh, aspect of alcohol dependence or alcoholism is is particularly troublesome. You can tell from withdrawal just how insidious the uh, an alcoholism can be in its grip on the body. Because if one goes into withdrawal, actually one could die from withdrawal if it's not treated properly in the right setting. There's a sweating pulse rate uh, over 100 beats per minute, hand tremors, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, and there are hallucinations that are visual, tactile, tactile, auditory. So uh, just an incredible grip that alcohol is in the body when one tries to stop drinking. And that's one reason why it's very difficult to stop on one's own. So kind of withdrawal, if you're going to get, we'll talk in a minute. Well, we can just get into it right now. I want to talk a little bit about kind of recovery or, or, you know, we have a whole range of people that kind of are sort of beginning to realize they maybe have a problem that just some lifestyle modifications Mm -hmm. would be very effective for the majority of those people on through, you really need help, like you just alluded to. You know, don't try to withdraw on your own because you could have serious ramifications without the appropriate help there. So let's talk a little bit about treatment. There's many, many, I know, opportunities for recovery. So why don't we start with some small lifestyle changes that people could make or how they think about improving their relationship with alcohol or stopping their relationship with alcohol. The two major categories, uh, and and these are non-medical terms, more layman's terms, are uh, alcohol abuse and alcohol dependency or alcoholism. So you're kind of talking in the abuse range, and there uh, willpower is is still possible. Mm that a person can choose not to drink if they haven't gone into the dependency stage. And and so lifestyle changes uh, are very important for someone who may be abusing alcohol to make. Playgrounds and playmates is, is an expression that's mm-hmm. used a lot, to, to change one's playgrounds and playmates. If you're around other people who are abusing alcohol, you're so much more bound to uh, abuse okay. alcohol mm-hmm. oneself. For some abusers, they can try and control their drinking, and they can do that successfully. But there may be certain triggers that they might want to avoid. Some people drink more than some alcoholics and are not alcoholic themselves. They're heavy drinkers, so it doesn't always depend on the volume. 
but heavy drinking is is certainly a sign of abuse as is binge drinking mm-hmm. and and both are extremely dangerous so the abuser should be very careful to stay away from heavy drinking having a, a lot of drinks over a period of time and, and especially binge drinking having four or five drinks in a period of two hours. Mm -hmm. What's a normal, like 80% of us don't have a problem with alcohol. So what's like a normal limit, like a drink a day or so many a week or what is kind of Mm -hmm. I was curious between the distinction between heavy drinking and binge drinking, for example. It sounds a little sexist, but some of the research says that for a woman, one drink a day, and for some of most that still men, sounds like two, a lot two drinks a day <laughs> yeah. has been called within the normal range. And of course, it depends on how big the drink. Right. <laughs> not a bottle. You have the well <laughs> drink. Not a CW, not for you, not the well drink. <laughs> the binge drinking, it's usually four or five drinks in a period of two hours. Okay. Um, That's a lot. And, and, and that, that is a lot. And there is a lot of uh, binge drinking around, especially, you know, we haven't talked about college, but college students in particular uh, can be subject to to binge drinking. Mm -hmm. And you talked before about, um, I wonder if like, if people are upset, are they more likely, like binge drinkers, are they more like when something bad happens, they turn to alcohol and they need to find strategies for periods of upset or is that related at all? You were saying people need to find strategies for binge drinking? Yeah. Yeah, it it depends that some binge drinkers may be abusers, some binge drinkers may be alcoholic. Okay. So it really depends on that where they are in that continuum. We're talking a little what, bit about triggers. Strategy. Yeah, triggers yeah. that may do that. Yeah. Are people generally aware, do you think, of how much they drink? That is an excellent question. If they are aware of how much they drink and if they've progressed into a serious abuse or dependency stage, their perception of how much they drink is going to be askew uh, because, you know, what's normal for someone who's alcoholic is definitely not normal for someone who's non-alcoholic. So, you know, you begin drinking if you're headed toward an alcoholism to to feel good. By the time an alcoholism has progressed, tolerance, of course, has increased, so it takes more drinks to get you just as drunk, and you're drinking just to not feel bad anymore. Right. Get to a neutral stage. Right, right. You know, we haven't talked about it before, but we had mentioned prior about, is there a link genetically? So when we got back to the issue of, like, parents and kids, or, you know, there's an alcoholic in the family, and now there's children in the home, what's your take on the genetic link? It's an excellent question. Uh, alcoholism is is complex. And, and so I don't forget to mention that one of the complexities is that the pure alcoholic is getting rarer and rarer these days. So uh, many persons who are alcoholic are also using something else in an addictive way. And, and that's important to remember also. Is that mostly prescription drugs in addition to alcohol or... It it can be a variety of things. Okay. It really depends upon, you know, what year we're in, mm-hmm. what, what decade we're in, what's popular in the culture. Because in addition to the biological aspect, there's this cultural aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the 70s, certain drugs were popular. In mm-hmm. the 80s, certain drugs were popular. In the 90s, now, you know, we have the prescription drug epidemic mm-hmm. uh, along with heroin. So uh, it can be temporal in that way as to what is used mm-hmm. along with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So back to the genetic link. Do you think that is there a genetic link, like a predisposition? Yes. If I'm an alcoholic for my children, is there a predisposition for that? There certainly is. 
it has biological aspects as well as cultural aspects as well as psychological aspects. And so many alcoholics will report that they were really alcoholic from their first drink wow. because that first drink seemed like a magic solution to them. There mm -hmm. was an incredible euphoria created and all their problems just seemed to disappear. The same can be true for um, marijuana. The mm -hmm. same can be true for opioids to a lesser extent mm -hmm. because opioids are just so addictive mm -hmm. for anybody in mm -hmm. any situation. But for alcoholics, uh, so many of them can relate with perfect clarity that when they drink. had that first drink wow. and, and what happened. For a lot of other people, gee, I got confused, I got sleepy, you know, mm -hmm. I, just, I was out of control. No big deal. Yeah. I, I, and I, you know, or no big deal, or I didn't like it. Very good. All right. So let's kind of go back to treatment. We talked about some early lifestyle changes on the moderate or daily, once a day kind of people that can cut back. But let's talk about serious alcoholics and treatment. So there's certainly recovery possible. People recover and stay sober every day. Can you point us to some some of your thoughts on recovery, long-term, sustainable sobriety, and some resources? If I could just go back oh, to sure. your excellent question about um, biological aspects, yeah. so that if a parent is alcoholic or addicted, that does uh, increase the chances for their child to be alcoholic or addicted. If you have two parents that are alcoholic or addicted, whether they're, of course, in recovery or not, it increases uh, the chances for the child to be alcoholic or addicted that much more. So it's important for parents to share that with their children uh, about the gene pool. And there's no reason why a, a child of two, especially recovering addicts or alcoholic, has to go through that suffering mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Okay, so back to the treatment options. Yes. I, I think the best combination um, is uh, treatment with a clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, addictions counselor, licensed professional counselor, uh, social work uh, who understands addiction. And, and that's an important distinction. Uh, that kind of treatment uh, plus the 12-step program. 12-step programs don't work for everybody, but uh, I think it's still a question in the graduate record exam that it, it works more than anything else uh, as a single component. But you don't want it to be a single component in so many mm -hmm. cases that you want it to be uh, conjoined with some type of therapeutic experience. Some folks are going to need uh, inpatient, especially if uh, they may be subject to withdrawal, mm -hmm. uh, which, as we talked about, uh, alcohol is so withdrawal. insidious. Yeah. Um, they go into the DTs, as they're called. Some people may be able to do it in outpatient, but I think the best setting would be at least some period of inpatient, if that's possible, you know, just to get away, to have something of a vacation from the outside world where there are so many pressures, so much temptation, uh, so much advertising. Mm -hmm. Um and, and it's not really a vacation when you're in treatment. Mm -hmm. I bet uh, it doesn't feel like You're that. working hard. Yeah, mm -hmm. working very hard. But something that would get a person away from the stress of everyday life, if it's affordable, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes one does not have the insurance for that. But there's resources, inpatient, outpatient. Um, a lot of the, the Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, are free programs just to show up at a meeting. There's plenty Correct. of meetings. All Atlanta, I think, has wonderful resources in terms of AA um, availability. One point I'd like to make that I know just from my friends, I'm curious your take on it, is I think if like from the perspective of a parent or a loved one that's not going through that, you think 
you go into treatment, hooray, we're here, we're here, we're here. And it's not always a straight up linear path. I mean, it might take three times or two times or a lifetime in AA or, you know, it's not one silver bullet. Would you agree with that? Very much so. Even the founder of AA went through treatment, I think, uh, four or five times before uh, he got sober. Yeah. And and like you were saying, uh, just to go back a sec, that there are meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, all over Metro Atlanta. Uh, there are also meetings of Narcotics Anonymous all over Metro Atlanta. Uh, if one has uh, a poly drug addiction, mm-hmm. uh, and, or if one may be younger, uh, there are young people's AA meetings, there are closed meetings, there are open meetings. If you don't know if you're alcoholic or not, anybody is welcome to go to an open meeting. Uh, they're free, like you said. Most people who've been in that program for a while get a sponsor, and the sponsor is free mm-hmm. <laughs> also. so. And I think there's programs for family members. Mm-hmm. So that's another, and it's important even if well. you're in treatment, you yeah. have to go back, live in your life. And so the people that love you that are trying to support you, um, I think there's programs pretty readily available for family members. There are Al-Anon, uh, and Naranon is the companion for Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, Al-Anon meetings are just wonderful. Started by the wife of Bill Wilson, who is the major co-founder of AA. Uh, so right from the get-go. Very uh, good. <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked a lot about treatment and recovery, and the big message there is help is available and, and sobriety is possible. So absolutely, um, there's. I think there's. Absolutely. that's one of the main messages. Um, a subject we haven't talked about that I'd like to revisit before our time is up is alcohol in the workplace. And so I know um, your organization works in schools, in the community, um, with lots of organizations, and one of your biggest that you work with is alcohol in the workplace. I know you have a drugs don't work program. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in the workplace with alcohol prevention? Yes, uh, we we sure do. We have two divisions at our council. Um, one is the prevention intervention division that I run that I've been talking about some of our programs, but we also have a drug free workplace department of transportation division that is just an excellent division. Our CEO has been very involved in establishing that program, not only in Georgia, but in about 13 other states around the country. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of expertise uh, in that division uh, about creating and maintaining a drug free workplace. And it's good for companies to know that. Uh, they can receive a state-mandated 7.5% discount on workers' comp insurance if they meet five simple requirements and become certified as a drug-free workplace. Wow, okay. So not That's only— impressive. I know. Not only does it avoid— uh, Are they pretty act- easy five steps, five things? They, they are an easy five requirements. Okay. Um, have a substance abuse policy, conduct limited drug testing, provide annual employee drug education— conduct annual supervisor training, and have a list of treatment and counseling centers available. Those all seem prudent. Yeah. They seem like, yeah, very prudent. Yeah, and it's and it's not all that difficult to do, especially when you have some guidance mm-hmm. uh, from folks uh, with the Drug-Free Workplace Division. Mm-hmm. Very Depending good. on the industry, I mean, that could make a pretty sizable financial impact on the business with Absolutely. being able to save that workman's comp cost. Absolutely really can because we were talking earlier about the billions of dollars worth of costs of the uh, employee who's actively alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Attendance, job performance, accidents on Risk, the job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were talking uh, just even about motor vehicle accident, the impact. Right. You want to share with the audience? Just We don't tend to think of first place alcohol and cars, but the 
I was astounded when you, would you share the statistic you shared with me about the cost of alcohol-related motor vehicle accidents in Georgia? Well, I, I know that the costs of alcohol in general are uh, astounding and in the billions. Just underage drinking costs alone, and this is from the RAND Corporation, so I'm not making this up, uh, $1.4 billion in 2015. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of the specific mm-hmm. costs of car accidents per se, but I know that- That's a p- big piece of it. About 10,000 of the 88,000 deaths we have in this country- due to alcohol or due to alcohol-related accidents. So Mm. you figure there are also a lot of injuries uh, from people that don't die in those accidents, so the cost must be staggering. Yeah, probably so. Well, we're just about out of time, but I'd like to pose two final questions, if I may. First one is, what is the greatest challenge you face in this field when you try to impact people to make better choices and less harmful behavior? Not coming across like I'm telling people that they are bad people <laughs> if they uh, are thinking about drinking. If if they're drinking, if they're alcoholic, certainly it's it's not a it's not a moral kind of issue for so many. the The greatest challenge uh, that I mentioned earlier is that it's hard to be heard uh, because there are two sides to the alcohol story. Most people don't have problems with it. But those that do often have horrendous problems that cause themselves and their family members tremendous suffering. So to break through some of the conditioning that alcohol is all good uh, and it's the patriotic thing to do, it's it's just a rite of passage for young people, that's probably some of the toughest challenges that we have. Hard to overcome that both uh, mostly nonverbal message. You know, I, I was really struck by just thinking about you take your kid through the grocery store. And it's kind of everywhere. It's on the end of the aisles. It's kind of everywhere. It looks like Kool-Aid and, you know, just the messaging at the ballpark. You go to the ballpark. Everybody's drinking. I'm just kind of, it's hard to be in an environment without um, some alcohol around. Absolutely. And in in my local grocery store recently, I had to uh, ask the manager to please move the Alka-Pops, which is the mm-hmm. alcohol package, like you just mentioned, away from the candy because mm-hmm. they had the candy display. Right <laughs> wow, who's thinking about alcohol. that? Uh, my last question is, is there new research or something that is exciting you um, that would kind of, whether that is effective strategies or physiological treatment or, uh, you know, is there something that you're excited about in your field that you think is making a little bit of a difference or will make a difference as time goes on? Well, I think taking lessons from the tobacco industry preventionists, uh, we're about 20 years behind yep, I agree where tobacco prevention is, but that, uh, you know, it hadn't been effective. a magic bullet, but it has been so effective in cutting down the numbers of smokers. We just don't look at smoking like we used to. With alcohol, it's, it's a little tougher challenge because, again, a lot of people don't experience those problems. Mm-hmm. But I think the environmental approach that I mentioned earlier uh, that's relatively new when it comes to alcohol, uh, affecting thousands of persons at a time uh, versus, you know, having a classroom or in addition, I should say, to having a classroom program, is beginning to show promising results for alcohol mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And with social media, I mean, the world is just digital. Right. So you can get your message out in a flash if you have the right message at the right place at the right time. Right. Yeah, so uh, a lot different ways on how we reach people on smartphones, CW, these mm-hmm. days. Instead of having to show up at a class, they come straight into our phone. Right. So appreciate that. Well, 
We are about out of time, and I don't want to leave without you clearly telling us um, how the listeners can reach you. Let's repeat a couple of times the websites that people can find information since we're trying to raise awareness and point people towards some resources, especially this month. Very good. Well, my email address is greduca at livedrugfree.org. greduca at livedrugfree.org. I'd be happy to respond to your emails. We have a website, www.livedrugfree.org. Uh, livedrugfree.org. That's our Council on Alcohol and Drugs website. We also have stopalcoholunder21.org, especially for parents and young people who are seeking resources. Again, the parenting manual uh, can be downloaded for free uh, on that website. So we have those various resources available. Very good. Thanks for sharing. Well, Alcohol Awareness Month, we're in honor of that, trying to raise awareness Um, appreciate you spending your time, one of the experts here in Georgia with us that covers the state and beyond with your drug-free programs. CW, we always talk at the end of the program about sharing this program. Mm -hmm. So if ever you out there listening shared a program, let this be the one because we can affect some pretty big numbers. Truly, you might just be, I know that there's people out there that are wondering about it, whether it's for their loved one, whether it's for themselves. Is this an issue for me? Is this something I really need to be thinking about? Uh, am I getting in trouble uh, myself mm-hmm. heading towards greater problems around perhaps being addicted to this substance and hearing this discussion might be the thing that pushes them towards getting the help that they need. So we really do hope you do turn around and share it. If you've not done so already, the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs Radio Show page, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the podcast lives. You can subscribe to us, and that way each week the new episode downloads straight to your device. You can check it out when it's convenient, making it very easy for you to turn around and share it on your social media pages and, and putting great information in the hands of people that you care about. And make sure you go by womenstelehealth.com. Get to know more about the service they provide to the high-risk pregnancies and the patients they serve both in the cities and in rural areas. They're doing some very cool things with telemedicine technology. And Tanya, you always bring awesome guests and topics. Today was an important one, I feel. So again, we're thrilled to have Dr. Viduka here. All of you out there, please share. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. 